The Aboriginal peoples of the Kulin Nations are the traditional custodians of the lands now named City of Greater Dandenong. We acknowledge, recognise and respect Elders past, present and emerging and their continuing connections to climate, culture and country. Open Book Podcast, books, events and conversations with the team at Greater Dandenong Libraries. I'm Mina and in this episode, Lee and Trent discuss the 1977 Italian supernatural horror film Suspiria, available on Canopy. I give you a bookmatch recommendation list for a patron after new crime fiction. We'll hear a reading of Fading Memories, a story written by a nine-year-old local student and author Jordan Jackson, which won the 2020 Children's Festival Story Competition. We'll have title reviews from library staff members Jason and Celine. We hope you enjoy. Hey everyone, uh, I'm Lee. I'm here with Trent. Hey everyone. For this uh, month's book chat, we're actually not going to talk about a book. We're going to talk about a 1977 classic movie that is featured on um, Canopy which is a movie service where you can access movies free on your library card. We are going to talk about Suspiria, the Italian horror uh, directed by Dario Argento. And we're going to kind of cross-reference it with the 2018 version of Suspiria, which is kind of hinted as a, not an exact remake, but... um jump into that for sure reimagining i guess would probably be i would definitely be able to give some point uh, some opinion about that (laughs) oh i have strong opinions about the remake so (laughs) we will definitely get into it but starting off suspiria uh it's so it's a supernatural horror um it stars jessica harper who is an American ballet student who transfers to a prestigious dance academy in Germany, realizes after a series of brutal murders that the academy is a front for a supernatural conspiracy. I'm going to leave pretty much the plot there because I feel like there's a lot we can talk about that isn't even related to the plot. But I'm going to ask you first, Trent, what did you think of the original Suspiria? So the original 1977 film, very colourful. I can understand where I think a lot of other reviews that I read and opinions that I read about the original, um, was it the Baroque was a term often used? Yeah. Um, if, if Baroque is colourful, then that is very much the definition of Suspiria. Reds, um, lots of blues and greens. I guess the primary colours, in a sense, is primarily red. Um, whether it's the, the lighting or whether it's the blood coming from various victims of the coven. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, yes, I, I thought it was a... Uh, I, I guess um, another thing as well is there, there was probably a little bit of disjointedness in the characterization or development of the story, but I'll see what you think, Lee. Yeah, I 
speaking about the color red, I read a uh, letterboxed review that was just like one sentence and it was, I can't believe Argento invented the color red in 1977. <laughs> and I think that <laughs> sums it up perfectly because yeah, all the the cinematography and the lighting is just it's it's there's a reason this is a cult classic and that so many cinematographers will look at this film as such an iconic piece of work it really emphasizes these really incredibly vivid primary colors and it's it becomes almost so emphasized that it becomes a little bit unrealistic and nightmarish and dreamlike it's real and um and the, the cinematographer, Luciano Tavoli, um, there's a really great quote from him that I wanted to read, which it goes as such. We were trying to reproduce the colour of Walt Disney's Snow White. It has been said from the beginning that Technicolor lacked subdued shades and was without nuances like cut-out cartoons. It is almost like, like a very bold cartoon in a way like if yeah. something's red it is the most intense shade of red it's if something's green it's like unbelievable neon goosebumps green like it is i just loved it i guess i guess in that sense sort of i don't know whether we want to get into it straight away but i guess the difference between the old and the new for me it was very much almost it was very much about the the framing the colorization the the angles um for for the old one um which really makes you feel whether it's the tension of of the story whereas the new one doesn't quite do the same thing it it achieves that through different methods but i guess that's why the the classic is is considered a classic because of its cinematography, like you say, that it's it's more about the the set itself than necessarily the story, which could almost be considered second fiddle to to everything else, which makes it so interesting. Yeah, it's I I found myself not really, especially on the old one, not really concentrating too closely on the story. It, it kind of followed a I don't, I don't know if I call it a pretty pretty traditional kind of horror narrative, but one thing we haven't mentioned apart from the cinematography is the soundtrack which was done by um an italian prog rock band called goblin um that was just so like incredibly brash and it was just so cool like (laughs) i don't know i have another word for it would it would have been a precursor to war of the worlds thinking about sort of similar prog rock in a sense because I know and, that I guess that would have been around the same time that Rush started, a Canadian prog rock band who was horribly under underknown, um, who have been around and still are around to this day. Um, no one knows about them, maybe because they're Canadian, maybe because they're prog rock. But I absolutely love it. It's just it's so vivid, it, and it sets up the the tone and what you sort of the feeling of of the particular scene. Like the music itself sets it so well. Like well, depending on because it's sort of fluctuates between two different pieces or or maybe two different um uh, what's the word bars or, or parts of a of a piece yeah yeah like there's, felt, there's definitely a recurring right? theme in the music yeah there was sort of two main songs that i noticed or two main parts of the song 
um, that established what was sort of about to happen or was happening um, in in any given scene of the film. There was um, even in the the first, I suppose, like quite horrifying scene in um, the original. All all the music was just this build up, I suppose, of you know the. More, more graphic scene and it was it just it went on for about three minutes of this wild mix of like glockenspiels and guitars and like drums just going wild and there's kind of no beat it's just this wall of noise and then it stops and then the yep. horror happens and it's oh it's it's so disturbing because the chaos and it sort of leaves you hanging in the moment that's the most chaotic So the the new one um, also has quite a famous soundtracker in Tom York from Radiohead, and it was significantly more subdued. So let's talk about the new one. What did you think of the the new Suspiria? So I did something that um, on reading some stuff pre-watching either of them, I did something that one reviewer suggested, which was watch the new one first. And I guess as a result, it painted the old one in a certain light that I found the characterization and the storyline much more prominent. Like like you said, that there was Tom York did the soundtrack for the new one. I couldn't really recall any particular piece that stood out. If anything, I could say the, the entire film was silent without a soundtrack at all. Yeah. That the soundtrack would have just played a part of of the emotion of the of the moment but without really standing out itself without sort of um uh, undercutting any of of the film or the narrative that was being told uh the visuals were just oh i guess for me it was the characterization the visuals even weren't as much uh a prominence as with the old film well yeah i mean talking about color in in terms of the visuals the from what i read the visuals of the new version they were aiming for more of like a winter tone so you get a lot more grays and a lot more brown sense when there is a primary color like a a red or a yellow it's um it does stand out um amongst all the the grayness and the wintry european one of the things um, I was wondering, which I haven't looked up, is the the building style, the architecture for the building in the new one. Is that considered brutalist? I think that might be the term for it. Yeah, it it definitely looks that way. It was it was very bleak and kind of sad and big boxy buildings. It's more more typical of the era that it was meant to be done in, just before the fall of the Berlin Wall. I um, for me. I'll be honest, I I didn't make it through the new version of Suspiria. And I have some theories about why. I just couldn't stomach it. Yep. A really interesting thing about the original Suspiria is that at the time it really wasn't well received. I read a, um, a review that called it a weak imitation of the exorcist and mostly gore with little plot or intrigue. And it's not uncommon for for movies of the time to come out and they're just like slammed and people don't really like it and it 
doesn't you know doesn't really take off and then years pass and it has this new cult status and that's exactly what's happened with Suspiria now we see that it's in you know lists that are like the greatest films of the 20th century and when people revisit it they give it a a five out of five and I think there's there's something interesting about just the way that the world has changed in the last what 40 or 50 years um when you think about the graphic details of the original Suspiria it's it does show violence and it's graphic but it's also quite unrealistic and um we all now know the tropes of like tomato sauce bottles you know representing blood and we we know these old tricks of horror movies now we're exposed to so much more on-screen violence and it's unsettling for people and it's not just in movies it's now in social media it's now in you know videos that people are taking you know on on the streets um and so i think for me watching the new suspiria and it's a lot more realistic it's it's shot in much more high definition um it doesn't have that silliness factor that i just like i couldn't stomach it i I just was like oh no it looks too real yep (laughs) one of the things i was just thinking about um mentioning sort of the seriousness and and how maybe the original was considered a bit more um silly um i think to some degree talking about what i was mentioning before sort of the the lack of focus on a narrative it's interesting um that the entire thing is framed within a dance studio and i think that given both films the original suspiria actually feels more like a ballet in the colors the even even the way people talk it's it's sort of this this lyrical hushed tones um i think just everybody's voice is is suited to the character that they're playing yeah without necessarily developing the characters themselves beyond the piece it's it's just this this musical performance um with with the backing of a prog rock band and so as a result it's interesting that the original is more of of a dance performance then i think the new one which much more focuses on the dance studio and the dance of the volk which is yeah. what was sort of focused on the the very primal dance that they have as the centerpiece for the new film um i almost feel like that was what the old one did maybe the dance itself is a tribute to the old film especially with the colors One one last thing that I thought was really interesting with the new film um, and the old film, I guess, not knowing much about them, even having read a few things previous, is that they were supernatural. Um, and as a result, I think that it, I'm realizing more and more that I am actually a fan of supernatural horror. And I think with these films, they're definitely making me want to investigate the genre at a, a greater level going forward. So I think if anyone's interested in supernatural horror, these these films should be right up your alley. Yeah. And I wanted to end us off with a quote, which is, I clearly didn't go very far for my research because this is another letterboxed review. Um, But I really loved it. And it summarised how I felt, especially watching the original. 
Watching Suspiria makes me forget that anything else exists. I forget every color that isn't on screen, every piece of music that isn't playing, and most importantly, every other film that has ever been made. It's a nightmare, a perfect, impossible, neon nightmare that makes me lose myself, and I love every second of it. Now we'd like to introduce you to nine-year-old author and student Jordan Jackson, who will be reading his story, Fading Memories, the winner of the 2020 Children's Festival Story Competition. Near the harbour, I lived in a small cottage. I was playing with my friends while my parents were talking to each other. It was a fun day as it was my birthday. I was having fun when bullets shot right past my face. I looked back in anxiousness and I saw my family lying on the floor. I saw red everywhere and then I heard a cry. My sister lay upon my mother crying for help. I knew I was not left alone. I slowly carried my sister on my shoulder and I could not live on. I travelled with other boats that saved people from terrorists and my sister and I travelled to a safe country. Everyone was different there, no food like ours and I could not even understand a word that the people said. Luckily, I met a young man who helped us and let us stay in his home. He took care like his own and his smile reminded me of my own dad. The man's wife looked like my big sister, and they reminded me of home. I soon learnt English, and I soon went to school. The young man, who is now called my dad, adopted me and Mia. We live in a happy family, and I am a very proud person to be with my new family. That is how I am writing now. My memories of my real parents still stay deep in my heart, but now my adopted family is amazing, and I am sure I will have a fun and exciting life in the future. And now, recommendations for a patron with a bookmatch request. Hi, my name is Mina, and I'm a librarian at Greater Dandenong Libraries. In this segment, I'll be making recommendations for a patron who likes crime stories. To help with the recommendations, the patron supplied the names of two books they had recently read and enjoyed. The first is Out by Natsuo Kuruno, a literary mystery translated from Japanese to English, and the second is Death by Dumpling by Vivian Chen, a cosy culinary mystery. I've chosen books across the crime spectrum beginning with a true crime. Although neither of the patron's books were true crime, my first pick has Common Themes to Out by Natsuo Kirano. So my first pick is The Good Girls, An Ordinary Killing by Sonia Falero. Katra Saratganj, a tiny village in western Uttar Pradesh, a community bounded by tradition and custom where young women are watched closely and know what is expected of them. It was an ordinary night when two girls, Padma and Lali, went missing. The next day their bodies were found, hanging in the orchard, their clothes muddied. In the ensuing months, the investigation into their deaths would implode everything that their small community held to be true and instigated a national conversation about sex, honour and violence. 
The good girls return to the scene of Padma and Lali's short lives and shocking deaths, daring to ask what is the human cost of shame. This is from Lit Hub's Anita Felicelli. Sonia Falero's The Good Girls is one of the best works of narrative nonfiction I've read. I'm pretty sure by the end of the year it will be one of this year's best books, period. It's the true crime story of two girls in Uttar Pradesh who are found hung from a mango tree. It's also a feminist work about the girl's death and the murder investigation that follows. The book immersed the way power works in an Indian village and how that power is upheld and reproduced, not only by the legal system but also by ordinary people who don't believe they're doing anything wrong. The author has also written another critically acclaimed work, Beautiful Thing, Inside the Secret World of Bombay's Dance Bars, as well as the novella The Girl. Sonia is the founder of the literary mentorship program South Asia Speaks and the co-founder of DECA, a global cooperative of award-winning journalists. In April 2021, she created Artists for India, an author-led initiative to raise funds for India during the COVID crisis. That was The Good Girls and Ordinary Killing by Sonia Falero. My second pick is The Bombay Prince by Sujata Masi. This is the third in a historical mystery series set in 1920s India and featuring Paveen mystery Bombay Solicitor. This series is not quite a cosy, but it's pretty close. I highly recommend the first two books in the series as well. November 1921. Edward VIII, Prince of Wales and future ruler of India, is arriving in Bombay to begin a four-month tour. The Indian subcontinent is chafing under British rule and Bombay solicitor Paveen Mystery isn't surprised when local unrest over the royal arrival spirals into riots. But she's horrified by the death of Franny Cuttingmaster, an 18-year-old female Parsi student, who falls from a second-floor gallery just as the prince's grand procession is passing by her college. Franny had come for a legal consultation just days before her death and what she confided makes Paveen suspicious that her death was not an accident. Paveen, who strongly identified with Franny, Another young Parsi woman, fighting hard against the confines of society's rules and expectations, feels terribly guilty for failing to help her. Praveen steps forward to assist Frenny's family in the fraught dealings of the coroner's inquest. And when Frenny's death is ruled a murder, Praveen knows she can't rest until she sees justice done. But Bombay is erupting, as armed British Secret Service march the streets, rioters attack anyone with perceived British connections, and desperate shopkeepers destroy their own wares so they'll not be targets of racial violence. Can Paveen help a suffering family when her own is in danger? My third pick is Lightseekers by Femi Kayode. When Dr Philip Taiwo is called on by a powerful Nigerian politician to investigate the public torture and murder of three university students in remote Port Harcourt, he has no idea that he's about to be enveloped by a perilous case that is far from cold. Philip is not a detective, he's an investigative psychologist an academic more interested in figuring out the why of a crime than actually solving it. But when he steps off the plane and into the dizzying frenzy of the provincial airport, he soon realises that the murder of the Okriki Three isn't as straightforward as he thought. With the help of his loyal and streetwise personal driver, Chika, Philip must work against those actively conspiring against him to pass together the truth of what happened to these students. My fourth pick is The Last Place You Look by Kristen Lepionka. Nobody knows what happened to Sarah Cook. The teenager disappeared 15 years ago, the same night her parents were brutally murdered in their suburban Ohio home. Her boyfriend, Brad Stockton, black and from the wrong side of the tracks, was convicted of the murders is now on death row. Though he's maintained his innocence all along, the clock is running out. His execution is only weeks away when his devoted sister insists she spied Sarah at an area gas station. 
Willing to try anything, she hires PI Roxanne Weary to look at the case and see if she can locate Sarah. Brad might be in a bad way, but private investigator Roxanne Weary isn't doing so hot herself. Still reeling from the recent death of her cop father in a line of duty, her main way of dealing with her grief has been working as little and drinking as much as possible. But Roxanne finds herself drawn into the story of Sarah's vanishing act, especially when she links the disappearance to one of her father's unsolved murder cases involving another teen girl. I thought I'd end on a bit of a lighter note, so my final pick is a cosy culinary mystery set in Singapore. Auntie Lee's Delights, a Singaporean mystery by Ovidia Yu. This delectable and witty mystery introduces Rosie Auntie Lee, feisty widow, amateur sleuth and proprietor of Singapore's best-loved home cooking restaurant. After losing her husband, Rosie Lee could easily have become one of Singapore's many idle rich ladies devoted to an aimless life of mahjong and luxury shopping. Instead, she threw herself into building a culinary empire from her restaurant, Auntie Lee's Delights, where spicy Singaporean home cooking is graciously served by Rosie Lee herself to locals and tourists alike. But when her body is found in one of Singapore's beautiful tourist havens, and when one of her wealthy guests fails to show at a dinner party, Auntie Lee knows that the two are likely connected. The murder and disappearance throw together Auntie Lee's henpecked stepson Mark, his social climbing wife Selena, a gay couple whose love is still illegal in Singapore, and an elderly Australian tourist couple whose visit, billed at first as a pleasure cruise, may mask a deeper purpose. Investigating the murder is rookie police commissioner Raja, who quickly discovers that the savvy and well-connected Auntie Lee can track down clues even better than local law enforcement. Wise, witty and unusually charming, Auntie Lee's Delights is a spicy mystery about love, friendship and home cooking in Singapore, where money flows freely and people of many religions and ethnicities coexist peacefully, but where tensions lurk just below the surface, sometimes with deadly results. The library has two other Auntie Lee mysteries if you love this one and you're craving a little bit more. If you'd like a list of recommendations curated especially for you and your reading tastes, go to greaterdandenong.vic.gov.au slash libraries or follow the link in the show notes. We'd love to hear from you. And finally, we have two title reviews from library staff members Jason and Celine. Hi, my name is Jason Cordy and I'll be reviewing Spark Joy, An Illustrated Guide to the Japanese Art of Tidying by Marie Kondo. Marie Kondo is also known for her best-selling title, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying. Spark Joy takes her concepts of tidying, which is referred to as the KonMari method, to a whole new level. Marie Kondo has literally changed lives and freed people from the clutter that has impacted their well-being. Like much of the modern Western world, we are a consumerist society, and it has created an issue whereby millions of homes have been taken over by clutter over time. People struggle to let things go, as understandably people develop an attachment to things. Marie Kondo makes it clear to only keep things that spark joy and to discard the rest. When working with an item and trying to decide whether to keep it or not, she emphasises that one must consider asking, does it spark joy when you touch it? Everyone seems to struggle when they have to cull through several items in front of them that they've kept for one reason or another. Her book details how this process can be done, which includes allowing for at least three minutes to pass before deciding between the top three items in a pile. Marie Kondo says that the common thought that an item might come in handy is taboo. 
There is an actual order to tidying, and the KonMari method by Marie Kondo covers all aspects in the household. The book is written as a guide with illustrations and broken up into sections from tidying clothes, tidying reading materials, tidying types of papers, kimono, which is miscellaneous items, and tidying specific sentimental items. She then goes through different rooms in the house and covers ways to ensure that each room sparks joy. Initially, I had come across Marie Kondo's books in the library and thought, I know how to tidy and I know how to fold clothes. I can just do it my way. But then I came across the adapted Netflix series last year while browsing through Netflix. And seeing it in practice motivated me to delve deeper to learn the KonMari method. This book actually covers the most effective way to fold clothes, which I now follow. I found the book to be extremely helpful as I moved house in the past year. It has actually replaced the anxiety around decluttering and I now have a deeper appreciation for minimalism. And I know that this is exactly what people need out there for what we all call a spring clean. I hope that this review sparks a bit of interest in you to read this title. Who knows, it might actually change your life. If you like Spark Joy by Marie Kondo, you may enjoy her other title, as I mentioned earlier, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up, or her other title, Joy at Work. You can borrow these items from our collection. My name is Céline, and today I will be talking about the book based on a true story by award-winning French author Delphine de Vigan. Interestingly, the author has chosen a narrator that shares a lot of resemblances with her own life. They are both called Delphine, have two teenage children, live in Paris, and are writers. Delphine, the character in the story, has published a very successful autobiographical novel about her mother's suicide. This was also the subject of Delphine de Vigan's previous novel, Nothing Holds Back the Night. Instead of enjoying the success of her latest book, Delphine in a Story, feels overwhelmed and unable to start writing the next one. At the same time, she is receiving anonymous and hateful letters, which seems to be from a relative, who resents her for exposing her life and her family's life to achieve fame. It is in a state of vulnerability and insecurity that Delphine meets a woman known to us only by her first initial L. The word L, E-L-L-E, in French also pronounced L, means her or she. So Delphine meets this woman at a friend's party. L is glamorous, well-groomed and confident, the type of women Delphine has always admired and envied. The two women become close, but it seems that the friendship is strangely one-sided. Whereas Delphine confined in L, we learned very little about her enigmatic friend. It also appears that Elle knows a lot about Delphine's life. She has read everything, books, articles the author has published. Elle becomes quickly an integral part of Delphine's life, and when Elle finds herself without a place to live, Delphine offers her to move in. Not only does Elle take full control over Delphine's life, she also starts to behave very oddly. Elle starts dressing and modeling herself after her friend. At the same time, Elle becomes increasingly obsessed about what Delphine should write next. 
while Delphine is thinking of writing a fiction about a contestant in a TV reality show, Elle wants her to write about her own life. Based on a true story is a fascinating and unsettling novel with lots of different layers. De Vigan cleverly blurs the line between fiction and memoir. As mentioned before, the protagonist bears many resemblances with the author herself. As a reader, you can't help wondering if De Vigan's own experience has inspired his book or if it's just an act of pure imagination. Another, has, another aspect of the novel I thought was remarkable is how the author described perfectly the relationship between Elle and Delphine and how Elle insidiously and methodically gains more and more control over Delphine's life. It was fascinating to witness how Delphine becomes to believe that she cannot exist without Elle. At the heart of the relationship between the two women is what it means to be a writer and what readers expect from them. Elle develops a very unhealthy obsession about what kind of book Delphine should write next. The two protagonists have many discussions about the role of fiction and non-fiction in literature. Elle is adamant that authors have a duty to tell the truth. Overall, based on a true story, is a very clever and thought-provoking book. The slow build-up of tension is extremely well done, and the three epigraphs by Stephen King set the mood for each part of the novel. I love the fact that this book left me thinking long after I finished it. I look forward to my next book club, as we will be discussing the book, and I am sure there will be lots of differing opinions about what happened at the end and who Elle really was. The book, based on a true story, is available as a print copy on an e-book at the City of Greater Dandenong Libraries. Thanks for listening. You can check out the show notes for more information on all the items we mentioned in the podcast. And you can place holds on them via the Libraries Victoria app or at our website, greaterdandenong.vic.gov.au slash libraries.